Chapter Twenty Third of *The Heart of Midlothian* by Sir Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Law, take thy victim. May she find the mercy in yon mild heaven, which this hard world denies her. It was an hour ere the jurors returned and as they traversed the crowd with slow steps as men about to discharge themselves of a heavy and painful responsibility the audience was hushed into profound earnest and awful silence have you agreed on your chancellor gentlemen was the first question of the judge the foreman called in scotland the chancellor of the jury usually the man of best rank and estimation among the assizers stepped forward and with a low reverence delivered to the court a sealed paper containing the verdict which until of late years that verbal returns are in some instances permitted was always couched in writing the jury remained standing while the judge broke the seals and having perused the paper handed it with an air of mournful gravity down to the clerk of court who proceeded to engross in the record the yet unknown verdict of which however all omened the tragical contents a form still remained trifling and unimportant in itself but to which imagination adds a sort of solemnity from the awful occasion upon which it is used a lighted candle was placed on the table the original paper containing the verdict was enclosed in a sheet of paper and sealed with the judge's own signet was transmitted to the crown office to be preserved among other records of the same kind as all this is transacted in profound silence the producing and extinguishing the candle seems a type of the human spark which is shortly afterwards doomed to be quenched and excites in the spectators something of the same effect which in england is obtained by the judge assuming the fatal cap of judgment when these preliminary forms had been gone through the judge required euphemia deans to attend to the verdict to be read after the usual words of style the verdict set forth that the jury having made choice of john kirk esq to be their chancellor and thomas moore merchant to be their clerk did by a plurality of voices find the said euphemia deans guilty of the crime libelled but in consideration of her extreme youth and the cruel circumstances of her case did earnestly entreat that the judge would recommend her to the mercy of the crown gentlemen said the judge you have done your duty and a painful one it must have been to men of humanity like you i will undoubtedly transmit your recommendation to the throne but it is my duty to tell all 
who now hear me but especially to inform that unhappy young woman in order that her mind may be settled accordingly that i have not the least hope of a pardon being granted in the present case you know the crime has been increasing in this land and i know farther that this has been ascribed to the lenity in which the laws have been exercised and that there is therefore no hope whatever of obtaining a remission for this offence the jury bowed again and released from their painful office dispersed themselves among the mass of bystanders the court then asked mr fairbrother whether he had anything to say why judgment could not follow on the verdict the counsel had spent some time in pursuing and re-pursuing the verdict counting the letters in each juror's name and weighing every phrase nay every syllable in the nicest scales of legal criticism but the clerk of the jury had understood his business too well no flaw was to be found and fairbrother mournfully intimated that he had nothing to say in arrest of judgment the presiding judge then addressed the unhappy prisoner euphemia deans attend to the sentence of the court now to be pronounced against you she rose from her seat and with a composure far greater than could have been augured from her demeanour during some parts of the trial abode the conclusion of the awful scene so nearly does the mental portion of our feelings resemble those which are corporeal that the first severe blows which we receive bring with them a stunning apathy which renders us indifferent to those that follow them thus said mandrin when he was undergoing the punishment of the wheel and so have all felt upon whom successive inflictions have descended with continuous and reiterated violence young woman said the judge it is my painful duty to tell you that your life is forfeited under a law which if it may seem in some degree severe is yet wisely so to render those of your unhappy situation aware what risk they run by concealing out of pride or false shame their lapse from virtue and making no preparation to save the lives of the unfortunate infants whom they are to bring into the world when you concealed your situation from your mistress your sister and other worthy and compassionate persons of your own sex in whose favour your former conduct had given you a fair place you seem to me to have had in your contemplation at least the death of the helpless creature for whose life you neglected to provide how the child was disposed of whether it was dealt upon by another or by yourself whether the extraordinary story you have told is partly false or altogether so is between god and your own conscience i will not aggravate your distress by pressing on that topic but i do most solemnly adjure you to employ the remaining space of your time 
in making your peace with god for which purpose such reverend clergymen as you yourself may name shall have access to you notwithstanding the humane recommendation of the jury i cannot afford to you in the present circumstances of the country the slightest hope that your life will be prolonged beyond the period assigned for the execution of your sentence forsaking therefore the thoughts of this world let your mind be prepared by repentance for those of more awful moments for death judgment and eternity doomster read the sentence when the doomster showed himself a tall haggard figure arrayed in a fantastic garment of black and grey passmented with silver lace all fell back with a sort of instinctive horror and made wide way for him to approach the foot of the table as this office was held by the common executioner men shouldered each other backward to avoid even the touch of his garment and some were seen to brush their own clothes which had accidentally become subject to such contamination a sound went through the court produced by each person drawing in their breath hard as men do when they expect or witness what is frightful and at the same time affecting the caitiff villain yet seemed amid his hardened brutality to have some sense of his being the object of public detestation which made him impatient of being in public as birds of evil omen are anxious to escape from daylight and from pure air repeating after the clerk of court he gabbled over the words of the sentence which condemned euphemia deans to be conducted back to the toll-booth of edinburgh and detained there until wednesday the day of blank and upon that day betwixt the hours of two and four o'clock afternoon to be conveyed to the commonplace of execution and there hanged by the neck upon a gibbet and this said the doomster aggravating his harsh voice i pronounce for doom he vanished when he had spoken the last emphatic word like a foul fiend after the purpose of his visitation had been accomplished but the impression of horror excited by his presence and his errand remained upon the crowd of spectators the unfortunate criminal for so she must now be termed with more susceptibility and more irritable feelings than her father and sister was found in this emergence to possess a considerable share of their courage she had remained standing motionless at the bar while the sentence was pronounced and was observed to shut her eyes when the doomster appeared but she was the first to break silence when that evil form had left his place god forgive ye my lords she said and dinna be angry with me for wishing it we all need forgiveness as for myself i canna blame ye for ye act up to your lights and if i havena killed my poor infant ye may witness all that have seen it this day that i have been the means of killing my grey-headed father i deserve the worst from man and from god too 
but god is more merciful to us than we are to each other with these words the trial concluded the crowd rushed bearing forward and shouldering each other out of the court in the same tumultuary mode in which they had entered and in excitation of animal motion and animal spirits soon forgot whatever they had felt as impressive in the scene which they had witnessed the professional spectators whom habit and theory had rendered as callous to the distress of the scene as medical men are to those of a surgical operation walked homeward in groups discussing the general principle of the statute under which the young woman was condemned the nature of the evidence and the arguments of the counsel without considering even that of the judge as exempt from their criticism the female spectators more compassionate were loud in exclamation against that part of the judge's speech which seemed to cut off the hope of pardon set him up indeed said mrs howden to tell us that the poor lassie behooved to die when mr john kirk as civil a gentleman as is within the ports of the town took the pains to prig for her himself ay but neighbour said miss damahoy drawing up her thin maidenly form to its full height of prime dignity i really think this unnatural business of having bastard bairns should be puttin a stop to there is not a hussy now on this side of thirty that you can bring within your doors but there will be chills rider lads prentice lads and what not coming traking after them for their destruction and discrediting one's honest house into the bargain i have no patience with them how neighbour said mrs howden we should live and let live we have been young ourselves and we are no eye to judge the worst when lads and lasses foregather young ourselves and judge the worst said miss damahoy i am no so old as that comes to mrs howden and as for what ye call the worst i ken neither good nor bad about the matter i thank my stars ye are thankful for small mercies then said mrs howden with a toss of her head and as for you and young i trow ye were doing for yourself at the last writing of the scots parliament and that was in the gracious year seven so ye can be no sick chicken at any rate plumdamus who acted as squire of the body to the two contending dames instantly saw the hazard of entering into such delicate points of chronology and being a lover of peace and good neighbourhood lost no time in bringing back the conversation to its original subject the judge didna tell us all he could have told us if he had liked about the application for pardon neighbours said he there is i a wimple in a lawyer's clue but it's a wee bit of a secret and what is it what is it neighbour plumdamus said mrs howden and miss damahoy at once the acid fermentation of their dispute being at once neutralized by the powerful alkali implied in the word secret here's mr saddletree 
can tell ye that better than me for it was him that told me said plumdamus as saddletree came up with his wife hanging on his arm and looking very disconsolate when the question was put to saddletree he looked very scornful they speak about stopping the frequency of child murder said he in a contemptuous tone do you think our old enemies of england as glenduk i calls them in his printed statute book care a bottle whether we didna kill one another skin and burn house and foot man woman and bairns all and sindry omnis et singulos as mr crossmyloof says no no it's no that hinders them from pardoning the bit lassie but here is the pinch of the plea the king and queen are so ill-pleased with that mistake about porteus that devil a kindly scot will they pardon again either by reprieve or remission if the whole town of edinburgh should be all hanged on one toe devil that they were back at their german kale-yard then as my neighbour macroskie calls it said mrs howden and that's the way they're gone to guide us they say for certain said miss damahoy that king george flang his periwig in the fire when he heard of the porteous mob he has done that they say replied saddletree for less thing a will said miss damahoy he might keep more wit in his anger but it's all the better for his wigmaker eyes warrant the queen tore her bigonets for perfect anger ye'll have heard of that too said plumdamus and the king they say kick it sir robert walpole for no keeping down the mob of edinburgh but i dinna believe he would behave so ungenteel it's doom's truth though said saddletree and he was for kickin the duke of argyle too kickin the duke of argyle exclaimed the hearers at once in all the various combined keys of utter astonishment ay but mac cullamore's blood wouldna sit down with that there was risk of andro ferrara coming in thirds man the duke is a real scotsman a true friend to the country answered saddletree's hearers ay troth is he to king and country both as ye shall hear continued the orator if ye will come by to our house for it's safest speaking of sick things inter parites when they entered his shop he thrust his prentice boy out of it and unlocking his desk took out with an air of grave and complacent importance a dirty and crumpled piece of printed paper he observed this is new corn it's no everybody could show you the like of this it's the duke's speech about the porteous mob just promulgated by the hawkers ye shall hear what ian roy seen says for himself my correspondent bought it in the palace yard that's like just under the king's nose i think he claws up their mittens it came in a letter about a foolish bill of exchange that the man wanted me to renew for him i wish ye would see about it mrs saddletree 
honest mrs saddletree had hitherto been so sincerely distressed about the situation of her unfortunate protege that she had suffered her husband to proceed in his own way without attending to what he was saying the words bills and renew had however an awakening sound in them and she snatched the letter which her husband held towards her and wiping her eyes and putting on her spectacles endeavoured as fast as the dew which collected on her glasses would permit to get at the meaning of the needful part of the epistle while her husband with pompous elevation read an extract from the speech i am no minister i never was a minister and i never will be one i didna ken his grace was ever designed for the ministry interrupted mrs howden he disna mean a minister of the gospel mrs howden but a minister of state said saddletree with condescending goodness and then proceeded the time was when i might have been a piece of a minister but i was too sensible of my own incapacity to engage in any state affair and i thank god that i had always too great a value for those few abilities which nature has given me to employ them in doing any drudgery or any job of what kind soever i have ever since i set out in the world and i believe few have set out more early served my prince with my tongue i have served him with any little interest i had and i have served him with my sword and in my profession of arms i have held employments which i have lost and were i to be to-morrow deprived of those which still remain to me and which i have endeavoured honestly to deserve i would still serve him to the last acre of my inheritance and to the last drop of my blood mrs saddletree here broke in upon the orator mr saddletree what is the meaning of all this here ye are clavering about the duke of argyle and this man martingale gone to break on our hands and lose us good sixty pounds i wonder what duke will pay that quotha i wish the duke of argyle would pay his own accounts he is in a thousand pounds scots on these very books when he was last at royston i'm no saying but he's a just nobleman and that it's good siller but it would drive one daft to be confused with dukes and drakes and the distressed folk upstairs that's jeanie deans and her father and then putting the very callant that was sewing the kerple out of the shop to play with blackguards in the clothes sit still neighbours it's not that i mean to disturb you but what between courts of law and courts of state and upper and under parliaments and parliament houses here and in london the good man's gone clean gite i think the gossips understood civility and the rule of doing as they would be done by too well to tarry upon the slight invitation implied in the conclusion of this speech and therefore made their farewells and departure as fast as possible saddletree whispering to plumdamas 
that he would meet him at mccroskey's the low-brow shop in the luckenbooths already mentioned in the hour of cause and put mac Cullimore's speech in his pocket for all the good wife's din when mrs saddletree saw the house freed of her importunate visitors and the little boy reclaimed from the pastimes of the wind to the exercise of the all she went to visit her unhappy relative david deans and his elder daughter who had found in her house the nearest place of friendly refuge end of chapter twenty third end of volume one